Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Matt Larson, CEO of Vistabeam. Vistabeam is a fixed wireless provider covering underserved areas of Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Matt and I discuss his years of work delivering broadband in some of the least served areas of the country, the important role of unlicensed spectrum, and why he thinks an influx of federal funding could actually make it harder to close the digital divide. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nicole. It's nice to be here. So um, just to start off, can you give me some background on your work in the broadband space, including starting Vistabeam? Where are you guys currently active? Give me the whole backstory. Sure. So I actually came from dial-up DSL background. Uh, I'd started a company that did dial-up and DSL in 1997. And uh, we ran into a bunch of issues with DSL, and it, it was like, you know, they, they, the phone companies didn't like sharing their lines and started to undercut us on pricing. So we started to look at fixed wireless way back in, you know, 98, 99 timeframe and uh, found that despite it had some flaws early on, it actually did some things that we couldn't do with DSL. So Mm -hmm. started uh, working with that. After I sold my first ISP, uh, I worked for a company that was using uh, licensed LMDS spectrum uh, with kind of mixed results. And I worked for them for a couple of years. And then when uh, they sold to another company, my non-compete expired. And that's when I started Vistabeam. And when we started Vistabeam, we just decided from day one, we were going to focus on fixed wireless only. And, uh, you know, that started out with three towers uh, around Scottsbluff, Nebraska. And now I think we have 365 infrastructure points there in all towers. You know, sometimes it's Grain Lake or a, a rooftop. Uh, but now we've got 365 uh, infrastructure points spread out across about 40,000 square miles in uh, western Nebraska, eastern Wyoming, and northern Colorado. Um, and that's these are places. This is where I grew up. These are lots mm-hmm. of places I was familiar with. My dad was a cattle buyer, so we drove all over to all the livestock auctions in a lot of this area. So it was very familiar territory. Uh, but instead of going through pastures looking at cattle, we're going through pastures looking for tower sites where we can put stuff up to get internet out to the people out in the middle of nowhere. Very cool. And, you know, you mentioned DSL, you mentioned the middle of nowhere. Um, apart from the services that you're offering, what kind of services are available to the people who live there and, and work there? So uh, a lot of the area, we're the only option is pretty much us or Starlink. There are a few places where there are other uh, fixed wireless operators uh, that we compete with. Um, Interesting, a lot of places, a lot of the towns already have fiber. In fact, uh, my hometown, um, Scottsbluff and Gearing, Nebraska, we've been competing against gigabit fiber since uh, 2005. Hmm. So it's actually very complimentary. We kind of focus on the areas outside the fiber footprint and, uh, we still get a few customers in town uh, or we offer, sometimes we offer some specialized applications that uh, make sense to connect two different uh, regional connections. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's basically a combination of there's a lot of uh, other, uh, there are other WISPs in our area. There is a mobile uh, provider fixed wireless out there as well. Uh, and, uh, there's still a lot of DSL out there too, believe it or not. And, uh, uh, we have, We've put a lot of people, a lot of rural DSL customers especially have been switching over to fixed wireless. 
Okay, interesting. So in the places where you're saying uh, fibers coming in and, and competing with you, are, are you talking about fiber directly to the home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's fiber to the home in a lot of the communities that we serve. Okay. And, you know, that's, that's fine. I think fiber and fixed wireless are complementary, like I said. Yeah, uh, they, they do need each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've had good, good results uh, competing with that. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting is the new uh, fixed wireless platforms. There's very little difference uh, in customer experience. Uh, some of the new platforms we're using, uh, we're doing uh, up to five and 600 meg on unlicensed spectrum now. And uh, millimeter wave, which obviously is you know shorter range, but in certain places we're able to go up to uh, 1.8 gig speeds, mm. uh, symmetrical in places where we're deploying millimeter wave. So there's some there's some really cool options with fixed wireless now. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you're you're able to actually compete with the with fiber speeds. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it isn't. Yes, if you're going to go head to head and just say speed is the only factor then yeah, fiber is always going to have a little bit of an advantage over wireless, but there's so many other factors that are involved in offering a quality service. It has to do with how you manage the network, has to do with how you take care of your customers, has to do with the pricing, has to do with accessibility. Fiber requires that fiber being run all the way to the house. Wireless, we can put something up on a tower and cover like this, you know, five to 10 mile radius. Anybody can see the tower can get service. So, you know, fiber is kind of like playing, you know, it's very two dimensional, whereas wireless has that extra dimension of being able to do some other things. So it's, it's a little bit different, has a different set of flexibilities. And, uh, you know, we've, we've used those to our advantage. Let's us be nimble. Let's us bypass lots of roadblocks. Uh, we don't have to deal with right away. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of different, uh, things that make it unique. So we're kind of, uh, we're kind of, dancing around it a little bit, but there, there has been a lot of discussion about fiber versus fixed wireless in particular, because the federal government has a multi-billion dollar, uh, broadband set of broadband programs in the infrastructure bill. And the NTIA released its rules last month, which put uh, a bit of, uh, prioritization on, on fiber networks. Um, and it also, uh, you know, I think has some other rules in there that are worrying for the wireless community. So I wanted to hear from you a little bit about um, that set of funding, those rules, uh, if you still see opportunities for for your network in there, um, and uh, just generally how has federal funding played a role in um, your expansion so far? So federal funding played very little role in our expansion right up until uh, 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, and typically that's because wireless ISPs like myself were typically excluded from those programs. So USF was pretty much uh, to the incumbents only. And then the, the mobile carriers started, you know, getting into it a little bit. So really when CAF2 came out and they opened it up to where uh, fixed wireless operators could participate, that's where we decided to jump in. Uh, we were a successful recipient in the CAF2 auction. Uh, we got locations in Wyoming, Nebraska, and Colorado that we built out to. And it was great. It was kind of like, you know, getting the nose in the door to see how this would work. Uh, the uh, uh, requirements were fairly big. It forced us to upgrade a lot of things about how we ran the business, you know, to the point you have to have audited financials and follow gap accounting and a lot of other different requirements to be a federal funding recipient. 
and we stepped it up. You know, we can, we're, we're doing the reporting, we're doing the testing, we're doing all the things that they asked us to do. And we're, you know, like right now in our CAF too, I think we're about 60%. We're like way beyond even the, uh, we're already up to like about the five, five or six year, uh, benchmark and we're only two years in. So wow. I'm really, I, that, that part has been good. Um, RDOF was a very different experience for us. Uh, we tried to participate in RDOF. We did get, we do have a few locations in RDOF we were successful on, but uh, in general, um, I didn't feel like that was quite, didn't quite have the results I think that they really wanted uh, with it. So, you know, in general, federal funding has not been very positive for mm -hmm. wireless ISPs. Uh, it's been, uh, had pretty heavy requirements on it and uh, it's very lobbied out by I think the the fiber and cable and the mobile, the big guys basically I think really put a lot in there to kind of design it for them. Um, it's not to say it hasn't been we've we've got obviously gotten some big wins out of it. Uh, really the biggest win was uh, CARES Act. Uh, there were state programs that used CARES Act funding that were tremendously successful for us. Uh, we were able to do two CARES Act projects, one in Wyoming and one in Nebraska. Uh, the combination of those two programs, I think we have almost 2,000 customers running on the networks that were built in 2020 and early 2021. And uh, we were able to get basically like three and a half years worth of work done in about a year and really extend and upgrade our service to the point where, you know, now we've got 100 meg, uh, 100 down, 20 up available to the vast majority of our customers. And uh, we couldn't have done it without that CARES Act program. I wish more of the programs were like CARES Act. It was very results-based and had some some tight deadlines on it, and it forced us to, you know, do a lot of things really fast. CAF2 and RDOF had these really long timelines on it, and I I don't think people want to wait. You know, people want to people want to get online and do something. You know, that's yeah. that's the thing. I uh, there's no uh, you know I I don't really have an objection to fiber. We're doing some fiber ourselves. The fiber takes so long to build and it's so expensive and people have to wait for it. And I, I don't think we should be making people wait. Fix wireless, we've been able to get stuff out there in uh, months. Like I said, we did three and a half, four years worth of work in a short period of time. And that was with a pretty limited crew. We're not a huge company. We went from before CAF2, I think we were at 15 employees and now we're at 50. So wow. we're not a big company by any means. We got a lot of we got a lot of work done in a huge area at really what's a pretty low cost. Like uh, our Nebraska CARES Act, I think was 1.8 million. That's maybe enough. That might do like a small to medium sized town uh, with fiber. Mm -hmm. And we took that and extended that across like I think seven counties. So that was a that was a. Yeah. There's a lot of impact there. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear your perspective because a lot of the complaints from well certainly from the fiber industry with the CARES Act was was the tight timelines. There wasn't a lot that you could get done uh, from the that perspective on building out fiber infrastructure with the tight timelines of the CARES Act. So, a lot of wireless projects uh, ended up benefiting from that funding. Um, 
and like you're pointing out, uh, you know, which was good for the the communities that they served. Um, while you know, yes, the NTIA rules are prioritizing fiber. Uh, the law itself is tech neutral, and the decisions really are coming down to the states. So, in the states that you're in, are you? Do you have good relationships with the state broadband offices? Do you feel like they're going to want to include the work you're doing in in this federal funding that's coming down? I'm I'm hopeful that they will, uh, because uh, you know there are still locations out there that are unserved mm-hmm. with anything. Um, we do have Starlink, I guess, is a little bit of an overload, but uh, you know I, I think people are. We, we should be trying to come up with some kind of terrestrial solution to as many people as we can. And I think the track record that we have, along with the track record that's out there from a lot of the other wireless ISPs and how effective they've been in getting service out to people, uh, I, I think that's going to have some good consideration in there. Uh, there are a lot of places where it's just, it's just almost impossible to do fiber because you have to go through rock or there aren't poles in the ground or, you know, dealing with right away, trying to get across, you know, part of, uh, there's a lot of federal lands out here and dealing with BLM and uh, U.S. Forest Service and that sort of thing to try and get right away through those places is really problematic. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of places where wireless is just going to make more sense. Uh, We do a lot of fiber as well, but we're working on fiber to the tower Mm-hmm. And then using that to distribute from there. So I think the priority right now is getting fiber to the towers and taking care of that middle mile problem, because that will resolve a huge portion of what holds holds these things up. Uh, and that's getting more backbone. You know, we've got last mile wireless fixed wireless that can do you know five hundred five six hundred meg uh, per sector. Well, you put four sectors on there, and you need a ten gig feed to to run a tower. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that. That's going to take fiber, most likely, or fiber very close. And there's a lot of places that need don't have fiber that close. So I, I think we should be prioritizing getting fiber to the towers, build out last mile with fixed wireless, and then build the fiber out over a period of time, at least in the areas I serve where you don't have sufficient density. Now, if you're talking about towns and you know rural developments and neighborhoods like that that have decent density. Sure, go ahead and do fiber in those areas. But uh, for the places that are way, you know, way rural, you know, you're talking about anywhere from uh, eight to 20 times cheaper to use fixed wireless than fiber. That's pretty significant. Um, You know, I know this is a a term that will probably probably makes your stomach turn at this point. But uh, can you refute the idea that fixed wireless is not, quote unquote, future proof? Yeah, I mean, that that is just one of the silliest things <laughs> I have ever heard. Uh, so when we started deploying fixed wireless, uh, we were offering, I think, 512K was our top speed. So we have basically taken, uh, we've got access to a little bit more spectrum than we had when we originally started. But now we're offering, you know, speeds in the hundreds of megabits and gigabit in some cases. So... Yeah, you can say fiber is future proof. You know what else is future proof? Towers and infrastructure at towers and spectrum. Uh, unlicensed spectrum is also future proof. Mm-hmm. That that is a tool in the toolbox that can be used for a very long time. Um, you know, when we got fiber originally installed uh, in Scotts Bluff at our office, the electronics have been upgraded three times. 
So the fiber might be might be future proof, but sonics <laughs> aren't. So Great there's point. always going to be some kind of upgrade that needs to yeah. needs to take place when you go out and put this stuff out there. So the idea of fiber being future proof uh, compared to fixed wireless is just completely ludicrous. That's just a that's just a fiber lobbying point. Uh, it's we've we've been able to good wireless operators have always been able to keep up with their customers' needs. So you also mentioned unlicensed spectrum, and I know that there is concern within the wireless community that uh, the notice of funding opportunity either omits unlicensed spectrum or doesn't mention it. Uh, what is your understanding of the rules around unlicensed spectrum, and what will we, as a you know, a country trying to solve the digital divide, miss out on if we're excluding operators uh, using unlicensed spectrum from helping uh, close this gap? So license spectrum, but let me let me talk about that first. Please. License spectrum uh, is used. It's very expensive. It shows up as an asset on these big companies' balance sheets, so they have to show value for it. So license spectrum is basically, in this case, being used to try and lock out other people from getting access to any of the funding. So I don't have anything against license spectrum, but as an operator, it's been very expensive to try and get access to. We haven't participated in any of the spectrum auctions because we would rather go out and build network and provide service to people than to speculate on spectrum value. So that's where I think it's being used to prop up the value of licensed spectrum from that point of view. As a tool, unlicensed spectrum is tremendously empowering for operators. Even the mobile operators, if you looked at how much traffic on your cell phone actually uses unlicensed spectrum through Wi-Fi to get out to the internet, uh, I, at one point, I haven't seen this in a long time, but I had heard that it was somewhere in the 50 to 60% or higher of your mobile phone traffic actually goes through unlicensed spectrum, wow. which I okay. think helps illustrate the utility of it. And it doesn't have the restrictions. So a small operator can use unlicensed spectrum without having to come up with, with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions worth of uh, assets to go out and try and acquire uh, license spectrum. So you kind of need to have, it's, it, gives you the, it, it gives you the ability to kind of have this ground up where you don't have to wait. It's like, oh, please, please come deploy, you know, wireless big company into our town so we can have broadband. It, it, it unlicensed spectrum enabled an entire industry of companies like mine to basically go out and say our company has a, or our community has a problem, we can take unlicensed spectrum and resolve that issue. That's what WISPs all over the country, all over the world have been doing for the last 20 years with unlicensed spectrum. So I think that helps illustrate the value of unlicensed spectrum. Mm -hmm. And we, it's reliable. This whole deal about unlicensed spectrum being unreliable, yeah, fiber's unreliable when the fiber gets cut. <laughs> unlicensed spectrum can be unreliable if it's not deployed properly. Mm -hmm. And all the good WISP operators that I know of are very familiar with how to handle interference and how to deploy into uh, uh, an environment in such a way as to be have a very robust and very reliable network. We are doing the testing. There are multiple wireless ISPs that participate in CAF2 that are doing the testing. We have to show our work. We show our homework. There's a company called Precine that has an appliance that a lot of WISPs use and they have the testing data to show how reliable these networks are. So anybody that thinks fixed wireless isn't reliable, bring it on. Cable guys, fiber guys, 
put your network out information out there. Let's see what your information looks like compared to unlicensed. And let's compare empirical data and not feelings. So speaking of uh, legislation and policy, uh, last question for you, and then I'll, I'll let you get back to your much more important work. Um, you know, are there other policy challenges that you're facing either on a state level or worried about coming down uh, on the, uh, at the federal level that would make it harder for you to do your jobs? What would make it easier for you to do your job uh, policy-wise? So we've been having a lot of discussion recently about the uh, mapping and data collection hmm. and the new uh, broadband data collection is very, very heavy lift. Uh, mm -hmm. we're going to be okay because we've been doing a lot of work on CAF and RDOF to make sure that we have things tested and that we've had to have engineering requirements on how we build our networks. It is going to really be hard for a lot of smaller operators to uh, meet up with those requirements. So I have some grave concerns over that. I hope that uh, there's going to be some consideration for the time it's going to take for some of these guys to get up to speed. Uh, and to be able to meet up with the requirements of it. I mean, yeah, the, the data is important to have. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that there, there have probably been some operators that have, have fudged what their capabilities are. Uh, I think it's the big corporations that really fudged what their capabilities were to try and uh, keep, keep companies out. So uh, mm -hmm. I think the, the data mapping reporting requirements are, are going to be difficult. Um, you know, the, uh, the bead funding, I'm not, I, I just, I just don't see it being applicable to a lot of small providers. I think a lot of the money is going to get left on the table mm -hmm. because there are some pretty, pretty serious requirements in there. I would much rather see stuff like CARES Act was where it was like, here, here's a time frame, go out and resolve a specific problem. And you've got 24 months to do it. And that sort of thing, because that, that kind of that kind of says, let's make tangible progress. The issue we run into with a lot of these big programs, and I think this is this is going to sound a little this is going to sound a little reverse. The more money we put into broadband at the federal level, I think it actually makes the situation worse for deploying broadband. And I know that that sounds very yeah. contrarian, but the reason I say that is because as soon as this these programs were announced, we started to see prices increase, and so. There are other issues, obviously we've had supply chain issues and other things like that, but our costs for labor, our costs for raw materials, our costs for electronics um, have just gone through the roof. And that is a direct result of more money being contributed into the industry. Mm -hmm. So I, some of that stuff may have started happening on its own, but what I've noticed is the more money the feds put into something, the more expensive it gets. So those of us that aren't participating in these federal funding programs are having to deal with the consequences. So if my costs, we've already seen our cost of deploying fiber double, and I think there is a chance for it to look like triple what it cost us pre-COVID in 2019, wow. 2020. So the real cost I think out there in policy is putting too much money into the market, giving it to the wrong people, having these extended timelines where, you know, Fiber keeps having to push out, you know, it's four or five years to get fiber deployed in a lot of places. Uh, that's the real challenge is these programs, they're promising money, but the actual results are making the environment worse. Mm -hmm. So 
that's, I think, probably the biggest policy challenge because that makes it harder for us to do our job when our costs keep going up. Wow. Well, that's, uh, and especially if you aren't going to be benefiting from those, those programs. Um, wow. Well, that's a really interesting per- perspective on all of this. Um, thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me about all this today, and I'll definitely be keeping up with your work. You bet. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, always nice to get an opportunity to kind of talk about what we do. Absolutely. Thank you again, Matt, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landreau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.